every thought that ever comes to your mind is either truth and has its origin in God or it is error and has its origin in Satan. Every single thought that ever passes through your mind. There are no neutral thoughts. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. If you could describe the most evil person in the world, what form would that person take? What would uh, that person be like? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part 13 for us of his current series, Learning to Use God's Armor. Well, the Bible describes your greatest enemy as proud, powerful, and wicked. His wrath and power are great and laced with cruel hate. He is a liar, and he is a murderer. And this real person is the one that the Bible calls Satan, your adversary, the devil, constantly and relentlessly warring against you. And if you're going to spiritually survive, you must be equipped and prepared for the battle with God's armor, holding fast against the dark spiritual powers of this present age. The question is, are you ready for the battle? Let's join our teacher for more now on The Word Unleashed. It's clear in the Gospels that our Lord Jesus Christ affirmed the reality and personality of a a true and real person called the devil. The Bible everywhere asserts that there is a galactic center of evil in the universe, and that center is in a real person called Satan. And Satan simply means adversary. He is the adversary of our souls. He is our avowed enemy, and he is a formidable enemy. He has no morals. He has no code of conduct. He has no sense of what is right and honorable. He is utterly unscrupulous. He is sadistically ruthless. In the war for our souls, Satan and his forces practice no Geneva Convention rules of war. He loves nothing that is good, and he absolutely attracts to everything that is evil and dirty and wicked. In fact, honestly for us, even unbelievers who still bear the imprint of the image of God, who still bear some of the residual effects of that image, it's hard for us even to imagine a person of such evil. But if you could somehow imagine a person who is an unholy mixture of the most evil people who have ever lived, if you could somehow combine the the negative qualities and the evil of rulers like Attila the Hun and Machiavelli and Adolf Hitler, if you could put in the, the evil mind of criminals like Jeffrey Dahmer who killed and cannibalized his victims, if you could put in men like the German doctor in Auschwitz, Joseph Mengele who kill and tortured the innocent for pure pleasure, terrorists like those who flew their planes into the World Trade Towers, delighting in killing innocent people. And then if you could roll all of those evil traits into one person, 
and somehow remove the last vestiges of the image of God, even the smallest hint of good, the smallest hint of justice, the smallest hint of mercy and grace, so that there is nothing left but the absolute darkest of evil, then you would begin to have a picture of the adversary of our souls. He was originally the greatest of God's creation. He was the prime minister of heaven. In fact, he's called the covering cherub. He was the the being responsible for guarding the very holiness of God. But the Bible tells us that he rebelled against God as creator. And now he has so radically changed that he is the absolute antithesis of everything he once was. In Scripture, this real person is called Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, Belial, the dragon, the great dragon, the serpent, the enemy, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the demons, the ruler of this world, the tempter, our adversary, the enemy, the god of this age, the wicked one. He is described as being proud and powerful and wicked and cynical and a slanderer and accuser. He's crafty and subtle and devious and deceitful. He is fierce and cruel. He is a liar and he is a murderer. He is compared to try to help us glimpse something of who he is. He's compared to carrying birds, to a wolf, to a roaring lion, to a dragon, and to a snake. It's as if the writers of Scripture are scraping the barrels of our imagination to try to come up with the most loathsome things we can imagine to picture this person who is our enemy. And this real person, the Bible calls Satan, our adversary, constantly, relentlessly wars against us. That is what our Lord Jesus Christ taught. And if we're going to spiritually survive, we must be equipped and prepared for the battle. In Ephesians 6, Paul prepares each of us for this battle. Let me read for you just a portion of Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. The paragraph we're studying begins in verse 10 and runs down through verse 20. Let me just read you the first section. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. The theme of this entire paragraph, the verses I read and running all the way down through verse 20 is this, we are in a war. The Christian life is war and we can only stand firm in the strength of Christ and with the armor of God. As Paul develops that theme in these 11 verses, he really divides the theme into three parts. In verses 10 through 13, there's kind of a general explanation of our duty. In verses 14 to 17, 
He gives us a detailed explanation of the armor that we're to put on piece by piece. And then in the third section, verses 18 to 20, there he describes a proper mindset or a proper attitude toward this battle that we're in. So we're looking at just the first part of these 11 verses, the verses 10 through 13, where we learn that if we're going to stand firm in the war that is the Christian life, we must understand our orders. We must understand generally what our duty is. Verse 10 gives us the overarching command. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. How? Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Why? Verse 11 continues, here's the objective, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Paul is talking, as we've learned, primarily about Satan's military tactics, his strategies. And we've examined those strategies against believers carefully. We've learned that while his attacks are varied, we can reduce them to three primary strategies Satan has with believers. Number one, he attacks the Word of God. He attacks its truthfulness. He attacks its sufficiency. He attacks our obedience to it. He attacks the Word of God with error and disobedience in whatever way he can. Number two, he intimidates with fear and persecution. And number three, he seduces with personal temptations. He does that through a world system that he's created that just sort of runs and throws out its temptations against us. He does that through personally tailored circumstances designed to appeal to our own lusts, as we saw last week. He also does it by trying to turn our trials into temptations to sin. We are to stand firm, to hold our ground against those strategies and tactics of Satan. So we've studied the overarching command, be strengthened with Christ's own power by putting on God's armor, the objective to stand firm against Satan's tactics. Today we come to verse 12. And here we have, as he continues to explain our orders, the nature of the warfare in which we are engaged. The nature of the warfare. You see, the approach to warfare, the approaches and methodologies of war change over time. Many wars have been lost because the superpower at that time is still holding on to the old methods, the old strategies. Perhaps the most graphic illustration of that in my own mind, we've all seen the pictures, we've all read the accounts of, in the Revolutionary War, the British soldiers all dressed prim and proper in their red coats, marching in a line as the colonists lay behind stone walls and shoot at them. They were still practicing the old style of war. And it got them defeated, and it got many of them killed. We see that even in our wars over in Afghanistan and Iraq. The commanders have repeatedly told us, this is a different kind of war. We have to fight differently with new strategies. So if we're going to be successful in our spiritual war, we had better know the nature of the war in which we are engaged. And he tells us that in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
Now, first of all, notice the connection between this verse and what comes before. It's tied together by that little but important word for, because. Paul is about to give us another reason we must have Jesus' strength and God's armor to win this war. It's because of the nature of the war in which we're engaged. And then he proceeds in verse 12 to define what the nature of this war is. First of all, notice that the nature of the war in which we're fighting is universal. It's universal. That is, it includes everyone. Notice in verses 10 and 11, the verbs and nouns and the understood commands are in the second person plural. You, meaning all of you Christians listening to this letter read in the church in Ephesus. He's talking to all of us. Then in verse 12, he changes at the beginning of the verse to the first person plural. The first person plural. Our. No longer you, but our struggle. Now, I don't know if you remember or not, but Paul does this one other time as we've worked our way through Ephesians. He did it back in chapter 2. You remember he started out by saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. But then he gets down to developing that, and he wants to include himself, and so he says, we all formerly lived like this. That's what he's doing here. Why? Because Paul wants to make a point that all Christians are included. It wasn't just the Christians in Ephesus listening to this letter read. It isn't just the, the lay people of the church in all eras and times. Paul includes himself. We all of us, our struggle. Paul is saying all of us, every Christian without exception, is in this battle. Now, this is really important for us to understand because do you feel like you're in a battle? Many people don't. Many genuine Christians really don't think they're in a war. They think they're just living life and all of their problems come from their own sinful fallen hearts and everything's good and we're just having a good time. Listen, Paul wants you to know that regardless of how old you are or young you are, regardless of how long or short a time you've been a Christian, how immature or mature you are, how much Bible you know, how little Bible you know, if you're a Christian, you are in this war. You're included. Whether you like it or not, whether you feel like it or not, whether you think you're in a war or not, it's universal. Our struggle. Secondly, the nature of the war is not only universal, it is personal. It's personal. Look again at verse 12. Our struggle. Now that is a very interesting Greek word that's translated struggle. It was the normal Greek word for wrestling. In fact, uh, those of you who grew up using the King James Version, it actually translates it that way. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's what the word means. It was used for Greco-Roman wrestling. And Paul uses this word because that kind of wrestling was one of the most popular games in the games that were held in Asia Minor, where the church in, at Ephesus was located, that region. Now, I don't know a lot about wrestling. I did a little bit in high school. I did some intramural wrestling. I actually enjoyed it. The competitive side of me enjoyed wrestling. But I found out pretty soon that I wasn't physically cut out for wrestling because, well, I have a nose that sticks out a little ways. 
God made me that way. I'm happy with it, content with it. But it got in the way in wrestling because it stuck out a little too far. And every wrestling match, whether I won or lost, it seemed like I got a bloody nose. And so I finally gave up. But during my brief wrestling career, there was one thing I discovered about wrestling. It is by far the most intensely personal sport I've ever participated in. <laughs> it is. And that's why Paul uses this word here. In fact, when this word wrestling is used in a military context in ancient Greek, it's used of hand-to-hand -hand combat. Now, war has changed over time. We live in an era when a soldier can sit in a ship hundreds of miles away from the target and guide a bomb to its destination. He can be safe behind his own lines and remotely control an unmanned drone to direct a missile to its target, to direct ammunition to its target. Don't misunderstand me. I know that even in today's war, there's much hand-to-hand -hand fighting. I'm saying the nature of war as a whole has shifted because the soldier today, even when it's mano a mano, often it is a soldier using a rifle that can strike an enemy up to a mile and a half away. Rome wasn't like that. They did have a few weapons that could devastate and kill at a distance, but for the most part, those weapons were for intimidation. They weren't very accurate. So to achieve victory in the Roman army, it meant eventually there had to be hand-to-hand -hand combat. So a great deal of the training of a Roman soldier was for intense, personal, hand-to-hand -hand combat, wrestling with the enemy. That's why Paul uses this word here. Paul chooses a word that pictures hand-to-hand -hand combat because he wants us to know that Satan and his demons are not at a distance shooting long-range missiles at us. The spiritual battle in which you and I are engaged every day, the battle with error and the battle with temptation, is intensely personal, and it can best be described as hand-to-hand combat, intensely personal. You say, how? I don't really sense Satan's presence. I don't sense his demon's presence in my life. Remember what we learned when we first started the series? That the war between God and Satan is fought where? Right here, in the mind of men. Every thought that ever comes to your mind is either truth and has its origin in God or it is error and has its origin in Satan. Every single thought that ever passes through your mind. There are no neutral thoughts. That battle is being waged constantly. And it is intensely personal because it happens inside your own mind. And it's like hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's like wrestling with the thoughts. That's why Paul uses this metaphor of hand-to-hand -hand combat. Our struggle is intensely personal, so much so that it takes place in our own minds. Thirdly, the nature of our warfare is not only universal, not only personal, it is spiritual. Look at verse 12 again. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against beings made with flesh and blood. In other words, we're not fighting humans. 
Now, this is so important to understand because most of the attacks Satan brings against us come from people. But when people attack the truth, when people try to intimidate us with fear and persecution, when people are a source of temptation in our lives, when people champion Satan's agenda, ultimately they are not the ones we're fighting. You have to keep that in mind. They are not the enemy. So important to understand this. And I think for most Christians, they go astray, particularly in the areas of moral and political issues of our time, like abortion and homosexuality. Most Christians have a hard time keeping this passage in mind when it comes to those sort of inflammatory, and rightfully so, issues. They have a hard time keeping the focus on the sin and the sinful issue. And pretty soon, the people who practice the sin are the people who champion it become the enemy. Folks, when that happens, Satan has won. Because the very people whom we're supposed to be rescuing from Satan now become the targets of our ammunition. Those who are supposed to be our mission field become our enemies. Listen, our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. Satan may use, in fact, he does use people, but always they are human shields to Satan. They are his line of defense. They are his pawns to accomplish his purposes. Our battle is not against flesh and blood ever. It is against Satan and his forces. It is spiritual. Fourthly, the nature of our warfare is supernatural. Supernatural. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but, and he uses a strong adversative in the Greek language, but on the other hand, on the contrary side, it is against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. In other words, it is against powerful, intelligent spirit beings. Now, we've already learned that our chief enemy is the devil. Look back in verse 11. He mentions the devil. In Matthew 13, when Jesus is talking about the parable of the tares, and remember, the, the enemy sows the seed in the field, and, and the tares and the wheat grow up together. That's basically sowing unbelievers into a bunch of believers so that it confuses everyone and makes the world say, if believers live like that, I don't want to be a Christian, and so forth. What does Christ say? He says, the enemy who did this is the devil. That's the enemy. But, and this is so important to understand, the devil is not omnipresent. The devil is not God. You know, I think when a lot of Christians think about the devil and God, they almost have a dualistic view. That they're not exactly equal. I mean, God is, after all, just a little more powerful, but it's almost dualism in which God and Satan are at odds. Listen to me. God created all things. We read this morning, Jesus Christ created all things. He has Satan under control. Satan has to show up in God's presence, according to Job 1, and ask his permission to do anything. He is, as Luther called him, God's devil. It's as if God has Satan on a leash, like a dog.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 13 of his series, Learning to Use God's Armor. Tom will bring you part 14 next time. We do hope you'll join us then. But Tom, it can seem daunting to think of dark spiritual powers presiding over the world powers, can't it? It certainly can be. But, you know, I think we have to remind ourselves that Satan is not sovereign. God is. Ultimately, our God is in control of all things. That means that in the end, all nations, all people, all demonic powers, all rulers, Satan himself, all without exception, will bow to Jesus Christ. And so if you are in Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord, your Savior, then Christian, you have nothing to fear. He is the one who will ultimately destroy Satan and his works, who who initiated that destruction at the cross, and who one day will banish Satan and all of his demons to the lake of fire forever. So hope in Christ. He is our deliverer. Thanks, Tom. And friend, church leadership can often seem like hazardous duty. Leaders can have both mountaintop experiences and seasons of discouragement. How can you, as a leader of Christ's church, faithfully respond to the different perspectives on leadership and the trials and triumphs of ministry? In Tom Pennington's book, Faithful Stewards, Tom identifies three key perspectives on church leadership that can help you maintain spiritual stability in ministry. Purchase your copy of Faithful Stewards today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.